Well, if you have your Bibles with you once more this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 25. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1055. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the middle of Jesus's final sermon uh, in teaching before he goes to the cross, often known as the Olivet Discourse. And we'll begin studying chapter 25 this morning, which is a series of three parables. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, unprepared. Matthew chapter 25, and we'll begin reading in verse number one. And this is what the Word of God says. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Every college student is familiar with the phrase, a weed-out class. This is the term that is used to describe those one or two classes in every major field of study that drastically reduce the number of students who go on to finish the program. And for accounting majors, those classes are intermediate accounting one and two. These classes distinguish between the prepared and the unprepared. And as an accounting student years ago, I can still remember gathering with my classmates just before each exam. And there in the hallway would be one student who would declare her certain demise because she felt unprepared. And then there was my classmate, Jeff, who with great bravado would pronounce his preparedness and the fact that the professor could bring on the test. However, not long into the exam, as my so-called unprepared classmate quietly took her test, strange sounds would begin to come from the vicinity of Jeff's desk. And as we progressed further into the exam, Jeff's huffing, Jeff's puffing, and Jeff's growling became louder. And so did the force at which his fingers pounded on his calculator. Then, like the crescendo in a symphony, 
Jeff would blurt out in utter frustration, the answer is not on here. (laughs) Did I mention to you that every exam was multiple choice? (laughs) Well, when the exams were all completed, my classmate who knew she would fail ended up scoring the highest in the class. And my classmate Jeff Well, let's just say that the Weed Out class did what it was designed to do. Because these accounting exams distinguish between the prepared and the unprepared. And Jesus' next parable in the Olivet Discourse also distinguishes between the prepared and the unprepared. This parable like the others in this section of Matthew's Gospel, illustrate Jesus' repeated warning that the exact time of His second coming will not be known in advance. And as sure as Jesus came the first time, He is coming again. And His coming will be unexpected. And that day will differentiate between the prepared And the unprepared, as Jesus judges the unprepared, and as Jesus rewards the prepared. And in this parable, Jesus stresses the danger of being unprepared to meet him. So, would you notice with me, first of all, in the text, the setting of the parable? And I'll warn you in advance that I have to give you some background so we can properly understand this parable. And that is the point of the very first point of the sermon, the setting of the parable. And as you've read along, you see that the setting for this parable was a typical Jewish wedding ceremony. And in Israel, as well as in most other parts of the ancient Near East, a wedding ceremony was the most celebrated social event Virtually everyone in the village or everyone in the community of a large city would be involved as a participant or as a guest in the wedding ceremony. And these ceremonies were a tremendous time of joy and celebration for all of the community to come together. And in a Jewish wedding ceremony, there were three parts. The first of which was referred to as the engagement. Most often arranged by the fathers of the bride and the groom, the engagement amounted to a contract of marriage in which the couple had little, if any, direct involvement. And once this first stage took place, they moved to the second stage, which was often referred to as the betrothal. The marriage ceremony at which the bride and the groom exchanged vows in the presence of family and friends. And at this point, the couple was considered married, and their relationship could only be broken by formal divorce, just as if they had been married for many years. And even though the marriage had not been physically consummated, and the two had not yet lived together, if the husband happened to die during this second stage... The bride was considered a widow. Now this betrothal stage could last for many months, sometimes up to a year, during which time the groom would establish himself in a business or a trade or farming so he could make provision for his future family. 
And at the end of the betrothal period, the final stage took place, the wedding feast. And it was the feast and its related celebrations that the entire community became involved in. This wedding feast could last for a week. It began with the grooms coming with his groomsmen to the bride's house where her bridesmaids were waiting with her. And together the bride and the groom and their attendants would then parade through the streets proclaiming that the wedding feast was about to take place. And the procession was generally started late in the evening and lamps or torches were used by the wedding party to illuminate their path to the celebration and to attract attention from all of the community. And at the end of the period of feasting and celebrating, a close friend of the groom who acted much like a best man would take the hand of the bride and place it in the hand of the groom, and the couple would be left alone for the first time together, and the marriage would be consummated, and they would begin their life together as husband and wife. And it's this third stage of the wedding feast that Jesus sets for this parable. And he uses it to illustrate the truths that he has been teaching his disciples and us about his second coming. So we not only see the setting of the parable, notice with me secondly, the spiritual significance of the parable in verses 1 to 5. Jesus said, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now notice how Jesus begins the parable. He begins it with the word then. It's a transition word connecting all the way back through Matthew chapter 24 and all of the truths that he has been teaching. And this word then refers to the time of Christ's unexpected appearing in great power and in great glory. And you'll notice in verse 1 that Jesus says that at the time of his second coming, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Now to be clear in verse 1, Jesus is not giving us a description of his kingdom. Rather, he is giving us a picture of what will take place in his kingdom at the time of his return. When Christ returns, the time for spiritual preparedness to enter into the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to the preparedness of the ten virgins who served as bridesmaids at this wedding. Now there may be significance in the fact that there were ten virgins because Jews considered ten to be a number that represented completion. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, A minimum of 10 men was required to celebrate the Passover. And the same number was required to establish a synagogue and to give an official wedding blessing. Additionally, you'll notice that these 10 were referred to as virgins because it was the custom of that day that the bridesmaids be chaste young women who had never been married. And Jesus says that these ten bridesmaids also had lamps. 
And it could literally be referred to as torches. It's the same word that is used in John 18.3 to describe the torches that the soldiers carried when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden. These torches or lamps were used by wedding attendants and they were consisted of tightly wrapped cloths attached to long poles. And in addition to lighting the way of the wedding procession, the lamps or torches, listen carefully, were used to identify who was a part of the wedding party. And you'll notice at the end of verse 1 that Jesus says that the bridesmaids took their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. Now for the purpose of understanding the rest of the parable, we'll clearly identify the meaning of each of these elements in verse 1. The bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. The ten virgins are professing believers in Christ. And the lamps or the torches symbolize these believers' outward identity with Christ's church. And they also represent the expectation of his imminent return and the preparation and the readiness of the bridesmaids to meet the bridegroom. Now you'll notice in verse 2, that Jesus further describes the ten bridesmaids saying that five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. And as we've established, these ten bridesmaids represent professing believers who claim to love Christ and who claim to love His appearing and who appear outwardly ready to meet their bridegroom. In their appearance, the ten bridesmaids, according to the text, were indistinguishable. All ten of them were dressed in their wedding garments, and they all had the required lamp or torch to carry as representative of the wedding party in the wedding procession. But look at the text carefully. As Jesus delineates, all of the bridesmaids may have been the same outwardly, but inwardly they were not truly alike. For five of them were wise, and five of them were foolish. And this is the point of the parable. Not all ten of the bridesmaids were prepared to meet the bridegroom. And Jesus will go on in verses 3 and 4 to highlight the differences between these ten bridesmaids. In verse 3, we notice that despite their outward appearance, the foolish bridesmaids were unprepared because even though they took their lamps, look at the text, they had no oil with them. They carried torches that looked exactly like those of the others, but they had nothing to burn in the torches, nothing that would give light, nothing that would give significance, nothing that would truly prove they were a part of the wedding party. And as one commentator noted, a torch without fuel is obviously worthless, and a profession of faith in Jesus Christ without a saving relationship to him, is infinitely more worthless because one is left in complete spiritual darkness. In contrast to the foolish, in verse number four, 
you see that the wise bridesmaids were prepared. They took flasks of oil with their lamps. Their outward profession of faith was matched by an inward possession of faith. Now, there have been no shortage of ideas over the centuries regarding the meaning of the flasks of oil. So let me be clear and summarize these suggestions for you. The oil of the lamps means oil. You can't have burning lamps without oil to burn in them. And the point of the parable is that oil symbolizes preparedness. And so if you insert that back into the text, five of the bridesmaids were prepared. They took flasks of oil with their lamps. And five of the bridesmaids were unprepared. They took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. And Jesus' point is unmistakable. We must live wisely, and we must be genuinely prepared for His return. For look at the text, friends. According to this parable, there is a large portion of the professing church of the Lord Jesus Christ that is not ready to meet their Lord. They are unprepared. They have lamps with no oil in them. And in verse 5, Jesus tells us that the bridesmaids were all gathered together. All of them were awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom, but the bridegroom was delayed, and all of the bridesmaids became drowsy and slept. And with this verse, Jesus is reinforcing what he has been teaching over and over throughout the Olivet Discourse. Namely, that his second coming will be unexpected. That no one will know the day or the hour. And that from a human standpoint, it may seem like his second coming is delayed. But from God's sovereign standpoint, the timing will be perfect. And as Jesus has already taught us in Matthew chapter 24, because so much time will have elapsed from his first coming to his second coming, it will be like the days of Noah. People will be going about their everyday business of life, marrying and giving in marriage, drinking, celebrating, working, building their business. And then that day will come unexpected. And because it will be a day that is unexpected, we will also, if we're alive during that time, be doing what these bridesmaids were doing, becoming drowsy and sleeping. And you'll notice in the text that Jesus doesn't single out the wise or the foolish. All ten of the bridesmaids became drowsy. All ten of the bridesmaids fell asleep. But because the foolish bridesmaids were unprepared, they slept with false assurance that they were ready for the bridegroom. And the wise bridesmaids slept with genuine security because they were prepared. Can you not see in this contrast between the wise and the foolish friends the spiritual significance of this parable. For the Lord Jesus Christ, 
can look down on every group of bridesmaids and can accurately judge between those who are wise and between those who are foolish. He can judge between the prepared and the unprepared. He can judge between the deceived and the unbelieving and those who are ready. And so the first scene in this parable emphasizes the need for every church member and for every person attending church to ask themselves if they are ready to meet Christ. Are you prepared? Do you realize this morning, friends, that you could meet Christ tomorrow in death? Would you be ready for that day? Would you say this morning that you have prepared your soul for eternity and for meeting Christ? Could you say this morning that you have confessed your sins and you've turned from them? Could you say this morning that you're believing in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone to take you to heaven and to have eternal life with Him? Could you say this morning that you have surrendered your life completely to Jesus Christ as your Lord? Could you say this morning that you are actively preparing your soul for eternity through the Word of God, through prayer, through the fellowship of the saints, through work and service in the church? Is your outward profession of Christ matched with an inward possession of Christ. This first scene in this parable demands that we ask and answer these questions. You know, the Christian life, as Jesus is teaching us, is a life that is to be lived in a state of preparedness. And as I was studying this passage this week, I came across a very helpful, encouraging, and challenging quote by a guy named Terry Johnson in his book, The Parables of Jesus. And this is what he said about a life of preparedness. And listen carefully because the first couple words are so profound and that's what struck me and grabbed my attention. And so I share it by way of help to you this morning. Readiness is not fretfulness. Just stop. Listen to that. Readiness is not fretfulness. He goes on. The disciples of Christ are of all people to enjoy the Creator's gifts. Food, marriage, children, music, art, And so live lives characterized by peace and joy and contentment and rejoice in the Redeemer's grace. Yet, in light of the high stakes involved, Christ's disciples are to be characterized by temperance and sobriety and good sense. And he says the Apostle Paul summarizes these two outlooks on preparedness this way in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Paul's summary of the tension between delighting in the gifts of God's grace and being ready, and yet not being fretful. And so I ask you this morning, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you realize that the second coming of Christ is your blessed hope? And are you living in the light of this hope by disciplining yourself in the grace of God for the purpose of godliness in this present age that you're living? And as you prepare to meet Christ... Are you rejoicing in the gifts of His grace that He has given to you without being fretful and anxious? It's really easy to lean on one side of the coin, if you will, and not see both sides. A state of discipline. A state of preparedness. A state of readiness, and yet a state of peace, of contentment, no anxiety, no fear, no worry, because you know you're held in the palm of his hand, and nothing and no one can change that. We not only see the setting of the parable and the spiritual significance of the parable. Third, we see the startling separation in the parable in verses 6 to 12. Look at the text. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, The other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now, according to the text, all of the bridesmaids knew the bridegroom would be coming soon. And so they all gathered at the bride's house waiting for him. And all ten of them were well aware that the engagement and the betrothal periods were over and that the final festivities and the feast was about to begin. But, as verse 6 shows us, they did not know the exact time of the arrival of the bridegroom until, in verse 6, there was a cry saying, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And the bridegroom's appearing at midnight once again reinforces the unexpectedness of Christ's return. That those living at the end of the tribulation will have seen the signs of His appearing and they will know that His appearing is imminent right at the door, but they will not know the time 
of his arrival. And in verse 7, Jesus says that as soon as the bridegroom's arrival was announced, all ten of the bridesmaids rose and trimmed their lamps. Now what's he talking about there? Well, this phrase, trim their lamps, probably refers to cutting off any of the ragged edges of the cloth that were attached to the pole and then pouring oil over those cloths and getting the torches ready to light. But now notice what happens in verse number 8. As they were trimming their lamps, the foolish bridesmaids realized they were not prepared. And they said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Now, I found this interesting to help understand the context. Many scholars believe that the amount of oil they could pour on the torch and light would last for about 15 minutes. So 15 minutes in to gathering together for this procession to celebrate the wedding feast, the foolish bridesmaids ran out of oil. And their torches would no longer light. Now to be clear, look at the text. It was not that the foolish bridesmaids had been unaware of their lack of oil. It was that they were not concerned enough about it to go and acquire it before the bridegroom's arrival. Notice also in the text. We're not told why the foolish bridesmaids were unprepared. They probably thought they had more time. They had probably grown weary, as the text says, and they became drowsy and they wanted to sleep a little bit. They thought they could probably, according to the text, borrow oil from someone else. Regardless of their logic, regardless of their reasoning, these foolish bridesmaids were unprepared. And here's the tragedy, friends. They knew, they knew the bridegroom was coming. And instead of sleeping, they could have gone and made preparations. And in the end, there was no excuse for their failure to be prepared. And like the foolish bridesmaids, when Christ returns... At the end of the tribulation, there will be many just like them who will be frantically running around trying to undo all the things they've done in their lives and quickly make preparations that should have been dealt with long ago. And they will find, just like these foolish bridesmaids did, that they will have no spiritual life in that moment. Now look in verse 9. In response to the foolish bridesmaid's request for oil, the wise answered saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy oil for yourselves. Now to be clear, because many people have attributed a lack of heart and compassion to these wise bridesmaids and their response, their response here was not one of selfishness or unconcern. If you read that in the text, you're misreading the text. Their response was one of helplessness. They only had enough oil for themselves. They could only prepare for them individually. 
they could not prepare for their friends. Every bridesmaid, listen, had to have their own torch and their own oil. It was a response of helplessness. And this serves as a reminder that one person cannot transfer spiritual life to another person. And one person cannot take their spiritual preparedness and pass it on to another person and make them prepared. Salvation is an individual gift of God by His grace to people. It cannot be borrowed. It cannot be earned. And it cannot be bought. It is a gift of God's grace. And I would not be doing my job as your pastor this morning if I did not remind you of this reality. I can't tell you how many times in over 30 years of ministry that I have had conversations with people who genuinely believed because their grandmother prayed for them, because their mom prayed for them, because they were good and sincere family members, that they were sure they were going to go to heaven on the wings of their grandmother's and their mother's prayer. And I say to you this morning, you have the text in front of you. You are reasonable people. Can you deduct that conclusion from the verses that I've just shown you? You cannot transfer spiritual life to someone else. It is individual. Everyone stands before Christ individually. A wife cannot stand in place of her husband. A husband cannot stand in place of his wife. Children, your parents cannot stand in your place in front of Christ. You must stand before Christ individually. And no one can prepare for you. Now this buying of oil from the dealers that the wise counsel the foolish to do, it simply refers to securing salvation from its only source, God Himself. It is the very same truth that the prophet Isaiah spoke to the people of his day in Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come by wine and milk, without money and without price. And Jesus used this same idea in his parables of the treasure found in the field and of the parable of the pearl of great price. And in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46, he said this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. And in all of these examples from the prophet Isaiah to Jesus' own teaching in the parables, those were counseled to discover what was of greatest value and humble themselves and sell everything and get rid of everything in their life to pursue the one thing that is greater than anything else. And in Isaiah's day, that was salvation. And in Jesus' day through the parables, it was salvation. And in this parable before us this morning, it is salvation. Go get oil. The bridegroom is here. Be ready. Forget about everything else. 
Get what is of most value. That's the picture. And that's the point. And in verse 10, Jesus says that while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Do you see in verse 10 that this verse describes a time of startling separation and of utter devastation? Because the foolish bridesmaids took the counsel of the wise and they went to buy oil from the local merchants. And while they were going shopping to get prepared, the bridegroom came. And these foolish bridesmaids, they found that all of the shops were closed. And they could secure no oil. It was too late to be prepared. But look at the text carefully, friends. Because it's easy to miss. And while verse 10 will be a time of utter devastation for the foolish bridesmaids, look at the verse. It will be a time of utter delight for the wise bridesmaids. Look what Jesus says. He says, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. They went to the celebration. And they feasted. And there was joy and gladness and food and music and dancing and relief and fellowship and communion. Can't you see the picture? Let J.C. Ryle help you get it. True Christians shall alone be found ready at the second advent, washed in the blood of the atonement, clothed in Christ's righteousness, renewed by the Spirit. They shall meet their Lord with boldness and sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb to go out no more. Surely this is a blessed prospect. Did you hear that? Surely this is a blessed prospect. This is a blessed thought. This is a blessed thing to think about. He goes on. They shall be with their Lord, with him who loved them and gave himself for them, with him who bore with them and carried them through their earthly pilgrimage, with him whom they loved truly and followed faithfully on earth, though they did it with much weakness and many a tear. They will be with their Lord forever. What a blessed prospect. And you know what just occurred to me as I was thinking about this? Think about some of your favorite wedding celebrations. What made them so great? It was the wall of donuts. (laughs) Right? It was the coffee. It was the cake. It was the joy of the bride and groom and being together to celebrate. Oh, what a blessed prospect, he says. Think about that. Additionally, in verse 10, look at it. What does he say? And the door was shut. And once again, this is a time of startling separation and utter devastation for the foolish. For just as God, listen, Just as God shut the door in the days of Noah as people were flocking to the flood, knee deep in water, ready to drown. 
He will shut the door of opportunity in that day and the fate of the unprepared will be sealed forever. As one commentator said, it will be a moment of sheer terror when unbelievers face a holy God and they realize with absolute certainty they are lost forever. Sheer terror on that day. But like the beginning of verse 10, the end of verse 10 and shutting the door, a time of utter devastation for the foolish, a time of utter delight for the wise. J.C. Ryle helps us once again. Surely, this also is a blessed prospect, a blessed thing to think about. The door shall be shut at last, shut on all pain and sorrow, shut on an ill-natured and wicked world, shut on a tempting devil, shut on all doubts and fears, shut to be opened again no more. And surely we may again say, this, this is a blessed prospect. The door is shut on cancer. The door is forever shut on broken marriages. The door is forever shut on rebellious children. The door is forever shut on war and rumors of war. The door is forever shut on discouragement and depression and doubt and fear and anxiety. It's all shut because God shuts the door. And when God shuts the door, no man can open it. And true believers... Those prepared to meet their Lord have this blessed assurance. You can fall asleep without fear or worry about what will take place at midnight. Because you're secure in the bridegroom. And in verse 11, after their unsuccessful attempt to purchase oil, look at what the foolish bridesmaids do. They come to the bridegroom. Knock on the door. Lord, Lord, open to us. And friends, you have to see verse 11 for what it is. It is a desperate attempt to correct their negligence and their lack of being prepared. But notice in verse 12, the bridegroom answers, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. It's a reminder that lost opportunities can never be regained. They can never be regained. That one day, the door to eternity is going to be shut. And all of our fates are going to be sealed forever. And what you were negligent in, what you postponed, what you denied, what you directed, will seal your eternal fate forever. And can you think of any more horrifying words than depart from me I do not know you and friends God in his mercy and grace he's allowed you in his perfect sovereign timing to be in this room at this moment on this day to hear this text of scripture explained to give you an opportunity of his grace grace to prepare and to come 
to Jesus Christ. The question is, what will you do with it? Will you be like the five foolish bridesmaids who were exposed for who they really were? Think of it. They dressed like bridesmaids. They acted like bridesmaids. They talked like bridesmaids. They knew the wedding language. But they were never a part of the wedding party. Depart from me. I do not know you. And although this parable illustrates the time of Christ's second coming, its truths apply to an unbeliever at any day in any stage of their life. Because there's coming a day when your opportunities for salvation will be over. If you hear his voice today, if you hear his word today, if his spirit is drawing you to him today, do not harden your heart. Come to Christ. And believer, as J.C. Ryle said, the truths of this parable are a blessed prospect. Live in this blessedness. Live in this hope. Think about this. What it will be like when he returns. Well, we not only see the setting of the parable, the spiritual significance of the parable, and the startling separation in the parable, Finally, in verse 13, we see the sobering statement of the parable. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Do you realize, friends, if you've been tracking along in the Olivet Discourse, that this is the fifth time in chapter 24 and chapter 25, Jesus says this statement. Watch therefore, you do not know the day. Or the hour. How much more does he need to warn us. Than what he's already given us. Jesus' warning or exhortation in this verse. Is a challenge for every single one of us. Who reads or hears these words. To examine our lives carefully. And to not dismiss this warning. Thinking it's for somebody else. We are good at that as Christians. And we come to church, we listen to the sermon, the pastor's on fire. We say, oh, that was so good. I wish so-and-so was here to hear it. And do you know what Jesus is saying in verse 13? I'm saying it to you so you'll hear it. This isn't for somebody else, it's for you. You watch, you be ready, you be prepared. The end is coming, it's for all of us. And as one writer said, nominal, distracted, unprepared, disinterested Christianity has been served notice by Jesus' words. This is not the religion of Christ. It's not enough to be a member of the church or to even faithfully to sit in a pew each Sunday. Thorough, careful preparations for eternity must be made. Listen to what he says. Don't stop. Don't quit. Don't backslide. Don't get distracted. Don't lose heart. Prepare your soul. Be constantly ready. Live careful, sober, urgent, sensible lives. Be always ready to meet Christ. And that's what I say to all of us this morning. Don't stop. Don't quit. Don't backslide. Don't give up. The things that you're putting off to make right, make them right today. 
If it's somebody in this room, make it right today in this room before you leave. If it's somebody under your roof in your home, make it right today. If it's something personal in your life, repent today. Turn from it today. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't backslide. Don't lose heart. Don't give in. Don't give up. It will be worth it in the end. You have a blessed prospect. Think about that. Run towards that. Live for that day. And you won't regret it. In this parable... Jesus stresses the danger of being unprepared to meet him. And Alfred Lloyd Tennyson captured the emphasis of this parable in a poem he wrote entitled, Late, Late, So Late. And I close with this. Late, late, so late, and dark the night and chill. Late, late, so late, but we can enter still. Too late, too late, you cannot enter now. No light had we, for that we do repent. And learning this, the bridegroom will relent. Too late, too late, ye cannot enter now. No light, so late, and dark and chill the night. Oh, let us in, that we may find the light. Too late, too late, ye cannot enter now. Have we not heard the bridegroom is so sweet? Oh, let us in, though late, to kiss his feet. No, no, too late. You cannot enter now. Don't be unprepared. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for caring for us enough to give us these stories and to give us these pictures so we can understand the truth of what you are teaching us. And oh God, by your grace today, would you help every single one of us to hear these words, to receive them, to consider them, and to examine our lives to make sure that we're prepared. We pray today, God, for those ready to quit and to give up, that you would infuse them with your grace and your spirit today and you would use your word to console them and encourage them and strengthen them and to set them back on the road. We pray today for those broken, broken by sin, broken by the pain of the world, you help them to see today, God, there's hope for them in Jesus. Would you draw them to you and heal their wounds? And oh God, would you help us to be a church that is faithful and ready? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.